Coming up today on the Zeitcast, piping hot takes. Piping hot takes. Okay, in all fairness, I'm not sure that I have piping hot takes on anything as I am not in real time enough. I don't know if I'm current enough to actually have hot takes. However, what you will get in this episode is some strong thoughts, my ideas about interpretation, how we think about scripture, uh, things I've been thinking about for a long time, talk about in different ways, but some of which I don't think I've ever expressed quite this way. And some of which will reflect the journey that I'm on now, uh, but just felt like time to share. Um, one of those episodes where I feel like I just need to get out of the way and get to the content. So uh, I'll just tell you, this came out of a teaching that I did with our community at the table in Oklahoma City. And I do want to say thank you to those of you who support us on Patreon. It's a wonderful way to keep this thing going. So really appreciate any of you who can help us in that way. Liking, commenting, subscribing, all those things always help. But I don't want to come back around. I want to let the thing be the thing today. And can't wait to hear your thoughts and where you are and how you're thinking about scripture, how we interpret these texts, how we interpret the broader text of our lives. Let's go. normally do, uh, I am going to default to the lectionary, which I think is generally a good idea. Let the Holy Spirit be the DJ for all of this, but um, I am going to go straight to the gospel reading, and what I do think I'll do is take this much um, liberty. Since we've not been doing this every week the way that we were, uh, this week's reading drops right into the heart of Matthew 5, one of the meatiest and most challenging parts of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, so the reading for this week is Matthew 5, 21 through 37, I think. I wanted to back up a few verses before that because it seems kind of impossible to talk about this part of the Sermon on the Mount without talking about what comes before. And if y'all are okay with this, um, again, a lot of stirring, I feel a little like Pin up, so I'll just gonna let this go, and we'll see. Um, we'll see where we land. But Matthew five, starting with, uh, we'll start with verse thirteen. So Jesus says, "You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden." Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the uh, under the measure. Oh, this is New American Standard. This language is expecting an art figure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before uh, men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And this I want to especially spend some time on. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, they shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, technically that would all be last week's lectionary reading. So really, this is just getting to uh, this week's, and this is a little meaty. So um, if, if you can bear with, let's really step into this. You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to their brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If you, therefore, are presenting your offering at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with them on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you paid up the last cent. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one part of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your parts perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the course for the uh, cause of adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill, fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is evil. Wow. There we go. Sermon of the Mount. Let's take just a moment to just... Um, those who are joining us online as well, maybe just to close our eyes and just pause, uh, breathe, and just kind of, uh, and just, just sit with these words, gather ourselves, be fully present to where we are, the people we're with, the space that we're in. In the Spirit of God, we just ask now that you would grant us the grace to um, experience all the things that we need to experience to see all the things that we need to see. Amen. It's fun hearing all this. So I want to start with this bit. Jesus says, do not think I came to abolish the law or the mm -hmm. prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill I really, I really, I really just want to say two things that I feel like are kind of large things to say and could be provocative 
depending on where you're coming from. And I don't know which is more provocative. Uh, I guess it kind of depends on where you're you're sitting. Um, both of these things being important to me um, for, for different reasons. But when Jesus says that he does not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. Um, so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and the, my preface to this is um, doing the work that I'm doing at uh, DePaul with the Center for Spiritual Life. Um, I, I've joked about one or two people who think I was converting to the Judaism. I have a wonderful relationship with our rabbi, Rabbi Pfeffer, and I'm there for all the events and all the feasts, and um, I love being present for all these things. Same with our imam and for our Muslim prayer. Uh, but getting to spend a lot of time with, uh, with Rabbi Pfeffer and being with the community, uh, so I, I feel spoiled rotten by it, really. There's some, I can't believe I just get to show up and kind of get this free sort of rabbinic education. And um, one of the things I feel like I'm coming to see that, I, I think I thought this before, but I'm coming to see in kind of a different way and experience in a different way. I know a lot of us who are, would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, will have ways, and I would say this including, I, I'm sure I've done this in, um, in, in different ways. And people who I like, right, adjacent to, would have different ways of expressing this. Where there's some version of, you know, the First Testament, as we tend to say around here, but as well, you know, Christians will commonly refer to as the Old Testament. Old Testament's great, it's helpful, but it's really incomplete. The law is really incomplete. Uh, got some good stuff, good basis for morality. But then finally we have Jesus, and now, like, you know, we know all these things that we did not know. I really don't see it that way anymore. Uh, I, I'm struck by how much at this point um, I see it as the story that we get in our First Testament is pretty complete in and of itself. I cannot think of a single thing that is revealed in the New Testament that is not already fully present. And I'm including, like, death and resurrection all over the First Testament. Um, these ideas that I feel like still get perpetuated. Well, you know, like, the Old Testament's, it's all about law, and you got to keep the laws. But finally, we see in the New Testament, it's about grace. Spoiler alert. It was actually always about grace. It was never really about just keeping rules and regulations. That was all there. Now, part of the genius of the First Testament, as we'll talk about, is that there's kind of this, um, there's a contestation that happens. There's a dispute between the texts, and there's text talking to texts. Um, but what emerges there, it was absolutely always about grace, and it was never about, like, keeping law. Um, I say this is a person, and, and by the way, this is not a way of um, the work of Jesus and the cross. All of that has never been more important to me than this right now. I just, my sense of it is Jesus fully embodies the story that's already told in Israel. He fully embodies it. Uh, he, he fully embodies all of it in himself, and he perfectly reveals it. But it was, it was all there to begin with. There's so many things I realize now that I would say, like kind of preaching, that now it just seemed funny um, years ago. The black are something just like brazenly untrue. I mean, I, I remember saying, like, well, you know, Jesus had died on the cross so that God could forgive people's sins. Ah, 
Except I read over and over again in our First Testament, God forgave people's sins. So evidently that was not the case. Jesus thought so forgives people's sins before the cross. It doesn't make the cross unnecessary. But what I just keep seeing is that all of these all of these things actually are there in a very complete form. But then Jesus, for me as a Christian, pulls these strands together, perfectly embodies them. But it's not, it's not that it just somehow wasn't, wasn't there before. And uh, that's been part of my experience of just kind of sitting with our Jewish community and listening to some of these stories. Hey, like, um, for example, spending time with the book of, uh, with the book of Jonah. And I did, a, uh, I did a little conversation a couple months ago with Rabbi Sandy Sasso, wonderful, on uh, the book of Jonah. I mean, all the death and resurrection stuff in Jonah, I mean, it's just, it's just all over the place. And, and so part of what it's brought for me is, a, is a, a good dose of humility in terms of like, hey, all right, this, I really, this is the story that Israel was always telling. This is what the Jewish story has always been, um, which doesn't make, again, Jesus somehow less unique, less, less particular. Actually, I feel like the New Testament goes to great pains to make this point that there is such radical continuity between these stories. Um, and even though, and I, and I know this is, a, this is a lot of preface, but even where Jesus will say in a few minutes, you know, you've heard it say, but I will say, um, what he's getting to in terms of what the spirit of the law has always been also is there um, within the First Testament. Um, part of what's remarkable to me about, uh, again, I'll use, to use our vernacular, the Old Testament of what's there, Again, the kind of back and forth. I think about this passage literally about every week now. So in Jeremiah uh, 7, verse 22, uh, I just think this is such a fascinating verse. Jeremiah 7, 22, so this is God speaking. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in that day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. <laughs> I, I just think about that verse all the because I feel like everybody will bring it up like in the Psalms um, that David says that God doesn't require a burnt offering and sacrifice. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, goes a, a strong step further. I never said anything about burnt offerings and sacrifice, which raises all kinds of critical questions. It's like, well, I mean, Leviticus definitely talks about burnt offerings and sacrifices. <laughs> That's definitely in the text. It's in, it's, it's in Scripture. But in Jeremiah, God says, well, I, never, I never gave you any of that. Now, if you're looking for like a silver bullet for how to resolve it, I mean, I, I definitely don't have it. But the point more is that it's all in the tradition. I mean, you know, part of what happens in the First Testament is this kind of back and forth between priests and prophets, where, as we often see now, priests are sort of often, not that their function is not important, but often does kind of preserve the role of the institution, where prophets are kind of contending for... And we see Jesus, who, interesting enough, Hebrews describes as a priest, but it's a priest who functions in a very prophetic way. Uh, in a prophetic way, he reimagines the priesthood. You know, prophets, there's kind of a long dispute between prophets and priests. That, like, hey, well, prophets have been saying all along, hey, this was never about rules and regulations. I mean, all of that is, is said repeatedly within the First Testament. So for me now, it's, it, just, it just seems very important and actually makes what I believe about Jesus much more beautiful that this is not a new story, but rather in Jesus, what we have is a summing up of the story that's been told from the beginning. And so there is a lot less discontinuity there um, than, I, than I would have assumed before. Now, the flip side of this, and this is where part of the conversation gets fun for me, um, and, and maybe provocative in a different way, is that 
And I want to I want to say this I want to say this in the right way. We have a lot of fun internal conversations about this, uh, as in me and Nicole and our friends and all things, because as I'm becoming so much more convinced of this, right? That the very that the things I believe to be most deeply true about Jesus, which okay, so things like that the story of God has always been about a story of forgiveness, that it's always been about mercy. Um, the story was always moving towards uh, inclusion rather than exclusion. It was always about uh, love. It was always about justice, that these themes, like these things, to believe that that's what the whole story is about, like both testaments, this whole thing's always moving in the same direction. The more I become convinced of that, and the more I sit with it in that way, the more than now I really am reading those those older texts, those First Testament texts, in such a different way now, to where a lot of stuff, to where I spent years of my life wrangling with, uh, you know, what do we do with all the problematic violence? And so they're like, I, I'm, not, I'm not grappling with those things quite in the same way that I used to. And sometimes find myself getting a little aggravated um, in a way at, at how some of those things will be articulated because, so a little bit like this. What's a good launching point here? Um, I still feel like I will I will hear a lot of things. Well, we had a funny conversation about this last night. So um, we were talking, uh, Nicole and Chris and I, after the fact about, um, I'm sorry, I'm, my head is so full because this is all uh, good and fresh for me. I'll start here, actually. Rabbi Sandy, I just brought up. When we had this conversation a few months ago, um, I tried to ask her, in a conversation in a room like this that was more intimate and, you know, students and all things, I was trying to ask her about what she does with, because Jonah is so interesting to me in that, you know, there's this text in Jonah where, where God first introduces God's self in Exodus, and you have the, I'm the Lord, the Lord, um, who gives mercy, I mean, I'm summarizing, on down through the generations, but also punishes the wicked on down through the generations, not failing, you know. They're, they're grandkids, grandkids. It's like all that stuff. There's this really um, funny and insightful moment in Jonah where when he's pushing back on God, he starts quoting that bit of Exodus back. And it, it, all of it's verbatim, you know. I've always known you're the Lord, the Lord, who shows mercy, then on down through the generations, etc. And right when it gets to the point where then it should go down into but punishing the wicked on down to generations. Then he says, but you relent from punishing. And so what I was trying to get Rabbi Sasso to talk about, and I thought, man, she's going to have a brilliant riff on this, is how, like, within her tradition, how do you deal with divine violence within the text? Well, I asked her the question, and she just didn't answer the question at all. And it was like it didn't compute. So then a few weeks later... Um, via Zoom, we did a podcast, which, by the way, I've been recording all things. I just have not got to put up, but they're, they're coming. I love so many things that we've recorded, uh, including the conversation with Chris, which is on Instagram. But we, we did this separate conversation. I tried to ask it again, kind of bringing up in a funny way how I asked it in the room, and how like, she essentially didn't respond to it. And she still basically didn't respond to it. <laughs> and kind of, and, and, I, and it, it really dawned on me after the second time. I was like, "Oh, this is actually incomprehensible to her." Like this idea that there are people who are struggling with the idea that, like, God would want to wa- wipe out the Ninevites is like, 
does not calculate in her brain. It would be, um, I think this is not the right example to use because Quentin Tarantino seems too extreme. <laughs> but if you are a Quentin Tarantino fan, I know some of the stuff is considered problematic now, I think. There's some Tarantino movies I really like. Where I certainly, my reading of them at the time certainly was like, man, Quentin Tarantino wants me to go out and kill people. Like, they're, the violence functions in a story in a way that's something different from, you should go get a gun and go murder people. That seems to be understood. I really felt like, like your rabbi said, it's, like, it's incomprehensible that anybody would be sitting there and thinking, like, but what do we do with, like, the fact that, that, we, that we have an image of a God like that? But in, in the tradition, no one, no one has ever really thought that God is like that. Like, that's not a, it's not a question that exists. And by the way, feel free to get more food, feel better with anything, y'all. Um, this is very involved. It, it's just not a, a question that's even like comprehensible within the question within the tradition, and that really landed with me. Of kind of like this question actually doesn't make sense here. So now it will land with me a little bit different because when I will hear like very progressive people, because now now don't get me wrong, I know there are a handful of New Testament texts that become like clobber passages and that kind of thing. But ultimately, when people talk about all the problematic things about scripture. Usually they're talking about Old Testament, First Testament, divine violence, this stuff, who kind of talk about it in this way, like, you know, well, you know, these are primitive texts by primitive people who sort of evolved past that. Now, weirdly, I get very bullish kind of on this point, because I'm like, look, you don't have, these don't have to be sacred texts to you. You don't have to believe. I never want to coerce anybody anything, but I'm so like, ah, I just don't believe that these are what these texts are trying to say. I don't think that's what they were ever saying. Um, one of these Chris and I were talking about last night, um, Origen, while he's some, somewhat controversial in the early church, our hot take would be, and I think this is the right one, that Origen is the best reader of scripture we have among the, the fathers. And he reads, he reads the First Testament so beautifully, precisely because he's trained by rabbis. He reads scripture in a very rabbinic way. And um, I think we get this in like in the church fathers in general. None of them are, are interpreting the first testament in this very like like rigid um, kind of wooden. So part of where this I, I don't think you'll be aggravated at me for sharing this. So part of where we had a funny conversation about this uh, last night. So Nicole and I had a small funny dispute the other week because she posted something from like a website that we like, and it was just like on Instagram stories that was from Marcus Borg. And it was the quote was something like Marcus Borg said something like, um, it was the phrase was something like, how did it go? Now I'm just, now I'm losing the quote. I had it like right here. Do you remember what I was talking about? Borg was saying something like the way that the, the Bible is an account of how, oh, I know he said, the first part was, the Bible is a human book, which actually I have no problems with. One of the reasons, uh, humans are, is, a, is a wonderful word. Um, part of what I love about Jesus, we see you can be human and divine. I, I'm like, I, I get tired of hearing the word human knocked around. So someone says like the Bible is a human book, like, well, of course it is. Humans wrote this. Human is a good holy word. Like, yeah, like I'm all for the Bible like being a human, a human book. The second part of the phrase was that um, he said something like, 
it does not, it gives us an account of the way our ancestors saw, not how God sees. And I didn't love that part. And that's where we had this like funny conversation because I was unintentionally a jerk about it. Because I have like a chip on my shoulder about my before. Um, Nicole had just driven in Green Catacles and she's just been on the road for an hour. And so I said something. Now I was trying to be a little funny, but it was snarky. I said, like, like man, if, if I was on the church's website and I saw him go to Marcusburg, I'd be out. <laughs> this did not go over well. <laughs> and I definitely ended up apologizing. <laughs> It's a terrible way to say that. And it's also and also not entirely fair because, so here's the context, which Nicole wasn't like, she's just engaging the quote. But context would feel like for like Marcus Borg. Um, Marcus Borg has said a lot of things I think are good and helpful. So Marcus Borg, John Dominic Crossan, um, these handful of people became largely known for, they started something called the Jesus Seminar. So it was a thing in the early 90s. And it was very much like kind of, um, revisiting the Gospels. They famously had a system of trying to decide which verses in the Gospels they thought were valid. And um, I actually think they both say, uh, a number of those guys say things that uh, are helpful. Uh, Crossan in particular, Don Donovan Crossan says some amazing things in, in a beautiful Irish accent. I think he's still alive. He's very old, but <laughs> man, his stuff on like empire is mind-blowing. His stuff about like reading scripture in the context of the Roman Empire. Like, I don't know anybody as good as him on that. Um, there is stuff reading cross and I find to be like absolutely revelatory. A lot of it that I love. What I don't tend to, and Marcus Borg was close friends with N.T. Wright. So, and then they, where they diverge, of course, is that N.T. Wright it becomes like much more Orthodox Christian, defends like resurrection. Borg does not believe in little resurrection. Now, Borg, I feel like, is great in terms of like in terms of big ideas about justice and love and beauty and all that, like life stuff. We land in so many of the same places. But what I don't love about Borg, Cross, and the whole crew, and what I didn't even love about that quote, is I do feel like it lands with a bit of this like it can read like. Uh, and I'm quotation marks here, these primitives. I mean, almost sounds like these savages who wrote these texts. Now we've evolved, and we understand these things better. And it's like, I don't think that's really what the texts were saying. I don't think that's how they were understood at the time. That's that's part of what's what's wild. I don't think they were understood this way at the time. Uh, Rabbi Pfeffer during Rosatana gave a sermon about Abraham in which he said, because uh, that season is so focused on Abraham and Isaac, and he said, you know, for whatever it's worth, I think Abraham should have said no. <laughs> God has a sacrifice. I said, wow. Well, and he goes into it. Like his reason for saying that is Abraham had just pleaded for Sodom. Hey, if there were 50 people that were righteous, would you spare? Yeah. How about if there were 40? What if there were 30? What if there were 20? What if there were 10? Every time God relents. Then Abraham stops. Abraham stops. I know it's later in the story chronologically, but where Moses pleads with God not to wipe out the Israelites in Exodus, and God relents. Uh, he says, like, no, it, Abraham should have said no. Like, you're not supposed to sacrifice your son. <laughs> and what I found, uh, we talked about this last night too, also like off camera, is that this is deep in the tradition. Is there always, like, rabbis, like, mostly say, because again, yeah, Abraham really should, should have said should have said no here. 
the idea is he should have known by now the character of God enough to like, you know, like you don't, you don't actually say. Now see, I don't think that's like something that trendy hipster theologians are coming up with who like just want to be, you know, or just smoking weed and want everybody to fuck or something like this. It's like, no, like this is, this is what happens like when you read literature well. I think like this is what's actually there. And, and part of how I've like the first testament functions over and over, and this is where I think so much gets missed, is that so many things are given to us as negative examples. And because we haven't been given permission to read them that way. That's something Chris said last night in the live, which is a vintage Chris Green riff. He does this better than anybody. And I love it because I know it hits people's buttons. But I'm like, I think he's just, he reads scripture well this way. He'll say things like, the stories of divine judgment in the Old Testament are there to show us that judgment doesn't work even if God does it. <laughs> and his point, sons of Korah rebel, earth swallows them up, the next generation comes along, they are so much worse than the sons of Korah, that every time there's like some act of retribution, that then the generation that comes up is significantly more evil than the one before. So the idea becomes like, hey, you know, when you think, man, if I could just retaliate against my enemy, hey, that wouldn't work even if God did it. That's what's actually in the literature. Again, not like novel, like whatever. This is what the big story is, is doing. Now, this doesn't mean, and I'm not trying to take that away from anybody. I understand that certain texts, especially there's a history of interpretation there that's really harmful. It was really powerful last week when C.C. Jones Davis said, uh, you know, she, she brings up, I don't remember the context exactly, this statement that landed so hard. Hey, like, we understand these these texts were used for 267 years to keep us in slavery. So, like, you know, the idea being we don't need anybody to tell us that that's, like, there. But, the, but of course, the idea is that there is a tradition that has always said this is not what these texts mean. And so that's all we're going to say. Like, hey, if anybody's triggered, if you don't think these texts are for you, like, that's okay. I'm not, you know, taking that away from you. But I do think it's important to maintain. I don't think that that's what any of these texts were ever actually saying to to begin with. I just don't think that's what's that's what's there. Oh yeah, so I know what to say. Because um, I feel like yes, there is a history of interpretation, a way of reading texts that has killed people. I mean, no doubt, it's killed people. But the way I would put it, like with a bit more of a fine point, is I don't really feel like it's I don't feel like the text has killed anybody. I feel like illiteracy is killing people. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that the same way now, in this all this stuff with like book banning, you got folks who don't want people to read Frederick Douglass' memoir and uh, or, or to kill a mockingbird, like and all of that wildness. Listen, whatever to whatever extent you think people have any kind of problem, like I promise you, there is nothing that's broken the world right now because people are reading anything. Yeah. And I would that I would preach It's like the, it's like these and of course the worst part of fundamentalism, right, is that like is it really it doesn't encourage deep reading of of texts. I mean that's that's the issue. Um so then we're not able to see what I think is like really uh I don't want to say obvious. I don't think that's the right phrase, because I don't know if it's always obvious. That's sometimes it, it takes mature reading. And that's part of what I love about what the Old Testament figure does model is, again, it's like there's dialogue, there's back and forth. It's not as simple as finding a verse. 
where does the story take you? What is the arc of the story take you? Where does the trajectory take you? This this all leads this all leads somewhere. But this is why I'm not. This is my critique of sort of like the you know the sort of you know board crossing kind of crew is that it can for one it, it can feel like it starts off with this sort of presumption. Well, we we are people who are enlightened who know that there's no magic in the world, so obviously none of that's right. And you start with all this like you kind of strip all those things away and in and, and a way that for me, um, for one can feel like not indirect, unintentional, but, but a kind of white supremacy in a way, honestly, it's sort of like, there's just, there's just an arrogance there. But, uh, so not, again, not the problem is that, you know, the Bible is largely a human book, but this idea of like, yeah, I kind of do actually think that scripture very much gives us God's way of seeing, but we have to enter scripture on its own, on its own terms. <laughs> And I feel like, goodness, I've said so many things and opened up uh, cans of worms. I know that now, no way to do that and, and unlock everything that's in the Sermon on the Mount. But see, part of the genius of what Jesus does, because Jesus is master rabbi, Jesus is master teacher. Yes, he says, you have heard it said, but he doesn't negate any of that, right? I mean, that he, he starts out of the gate with, hey, just want to let you know, I'm not trying to do away with any of this. I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And, and what Jesus says to us is what I feel like, you know, in the first Testament story, is really trying to tell us all along. Well, of course, it's not just about not murdering. It's about not, not being hateful. Of course, it was never not just about, like, not committing adultery, but not being consumed, not being seized by lust. Chris, I had a hilarious moment last night because I brought up, we were feeling loose, and I brought up, um, <laughs> I spent too long yesterday, too long. I can't believe I would have this now. And I think it's going to be like this too, too many times to bring up this, but it just made me laugh at heart. And looking at this text in particular, I was watching a bunch of clips on that Christian Nightmares account, and, um, <laughs> and there's so many that are just... I mean, awful and make a cringe, but they're, they're so funny. And one of the ones that got, got me so tickled was a guy preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's preaching on this, this bit where Jesus says, you know, the whole like, um, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, uh, cut it off. And he's like, and he says very earnestly, like, all Bible scholars, all Bible scholars agree that this is about masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting. I was not aware that there was a universal consensus. <laughs> As is true about almost all readings of scripture, that how we read it says a whole lot more about us than it does about the best. That's like... <laughs> I was like, really? It's like, it's like, but in love, he said, he's like, he stressed it like three times. All Bible scholars agree. Like, do they agree? <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> Goodness. And I know the kind of pushback, even when I uh, teach about a text like this, because yeah, like, hey, Jesus talks about hell, but keep in mind, Jesus never talks about hell as a kind of eternal conscious torment. It's the same way he talks about destruction or hell for Jesus is, Hades is used a couple times, mostly Gehenna, so the dumb where things that are not useful are thrown away and they are burned. Um, yeah, I think if we're consumed by hatred and lust, um, th there is a way that um, a life can become useless. But the whole reason, keep in mind that what we never see Jesus do once in the Gospels is come to people who are 
not of his faith or of his tradition and threaten them with judgment. What he's constantly doing is, is turning the whole grid around to say like, oh, you think you know who's being judged? Let me tell you who's in danger of judgment here. If anybody's in danger of being judged, uh, this is always the move that Jesus is making because what he wants, what he's trying to do, and I never want to make it as simple. I think the Sermon on the Mount is showing a little bit more. I, I think it's saying something more than we all need grace. I, there's more happening than that. Uh, you know, um, we learned in the freedom movement in the United States what turn the other cheek looks like. And it's not passive resistance. It's not letting people walk all over you. It is a, it's, rag, it's radical dignity, actually. You know, it's, um, it's staring eyeball to eyeball uh, with folks that come against you. Yeah, I think there's more there to saying like we all just need grace. But I do think what Jesus does do in the Sermon on the Mount is level the playing field, the way of saying like, look, like just because you haven't murdered, just because you haven't committed adultery, I remember like because this is how literal um, we were. Like um, among my friends, stuff we would have never said the word. Now this is I promise I'm wrapping up actually. We would have never said the words. We would have never called somebody a fool. Like even joking around. Because Jesus said, if you to say you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Now, how hilarious is this? Because like any other kid, in the way that kids do, I would have called my friends a moron. I would have called my friend an idiot, a jerk, like whatever. But I wouldn't have said fool. Because the Bible says, if you call somebody fool, then you're in danger of self. Now, y'all, how ridiculous! <laughs> I mean, the phrase even "raka," like the Hebrew, the whole idea, and even the vocally, it sounds like that. Is that you speak to someone with contempt? How many times, for those of us who are married or in long-term relationships, <laughs> how many times unintentionally have you gotten to fight where you've spoken out of a place of contempt? <laughs> now, isn't it hilarious, though, that we could think, like, we could read a text of this and be like, well, I never, I never said fool. <laughs> Sorry. Obviously, what Jesus is driving at here is that, like, okay, like, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you may not murder people, but you speak with contempt. You murder people with your words. The reason that you don't get to feel great about yourself. That's where the whole that's where the whole thing is is moving. But the fact that it can be turned into some kind of weird legalism, like, well, let's just be careful to avoid the word fool. Somebody cuts me off the traffic, throw a middle finger, call me, I didn't say fool. <laughs> and the point is not that we should be shamed and made to feel guilty about that. That it's just not what's happening. And I think it all goes part of what then is so beautiful to me is that we see how Jesus is really just trying to show to us what the law really has always been about, which is not some sort of blind rule keeping, but about actually becoming good people. Um, not trying to make this all about like virtue ethics, but I think it's something like that. Yeah, like becoming virtuous people. Like we're not, yeah, we're not just uh, we're not just doing rigidly like keeping the rules. We're people who are being transformed. Uh, into good, who legitimately operate out of love for uh, our neighbors. Um, this is this is the journey that we're on. But yes, even though Jesus says, "You have heard it say," but I said, He still, even in that, is embodying the best of what the prophets have always said. He's summing it up. He's taking it to its highest point of fulfillment. I would contend, and that's why I'm a Jesus person and someone who again believes that Jesus was the Son of God and resurrected from the dead. I think He embodies and brings it to its highest. 
film it. But he's not saying something completely novel that no one in tradition has ever said before. So, realizing I've said a lot of things. This is why this brings me around full circle to kind of this interesting, kind of interesting place. On, on the one hand, um, I've, a lot of the things that I assumed before, well, Jesus is saying all this stuff that nobody ever said in the Old Testament, as we'd say before. Eh, I don't really do that. I think it's all here. Jesus sums it up. He brings it together. He fully embodies it in his person. A lot, there was a lot more in that First Testament going on. You got a lot more right. <laughs> than I realized. So I speak with a little more humility about that than I used to in terms of like as if we as Christians invented all this. But on the same token, uh, again, it's made me a little bit more defensive about the texts themselves they come to being. You know, in terms of like, hey, again, nobody has to abide by them if they're not, uh, no one has to listen to me about anything. But in terms of this idea of like, yeah, I just think the way that these stories have often been read, it's just not, this is just not ever what was actually going on. And so that becomes now, and we uh, we had this conversation. Nicole and I have had this conversation a lot, and we did last night with Chris. And it's kind of um, it was really good just talking about how long it takes, though, to come to read these texts differently. Um, one of the things I was saying is that I actually feel like it's only maybe been the last year or two now that there are certain texts that I will read where I don't feel even sort of a twinge anymore of like the other thing. Because now I really feel like I'm so convinced of what I believe about the character of God and, and the heart of God, where uh, if I revisit certain texts, I'm like, I am immediately I'm like, okay, I am absolutely confident this is not about that. It's not about a wrathful anger. Like, like I don't, I don't believe it's there. But I did not, you know, flip a switch to get there. It's taken a long time to kind of read in that way. Um, that's what I see largely with some of my Jewish friends. There are benefits of being connected to a tradition where for a couple thousand years, people have not been reading these texts that way. <laughs> and so you don't import that baggage onto the text. If you do, uh, I'm not trying to say you should just be able to flip that switch. I just think, though, that that transition is possible to be able to come to read um, some of these texts in bigger, broader ways and be able to put some of these themes together. Um, that's the thing that like, for me, I, in, in a strange way, I've never honored the word of God more so, I don't think, than I do right now. I just think the story oftentimes says something bigger than just the verses. And it's the trouble of cobbling together and how well, this verse says this and this verse says that in ways that just honestly defy the basic rules of how we read literature. You know, like, well, thematically, like, where is the story moving? Uh, like, like, big picture, where, where is this taking us? So, Anyway, that's a whole lot of stuff. Let's um, let's pray. And uh, God, I just ask now, uh, because really all of this brings me again, uh, even after saying a lot of things and even saying some things that may sound confident or overconfident or something, uh, just as such a point of humility again, because we're just aware of the depth of these mysteries and that... In reality, the, um, the the text that we read, and not only the text that we read in Scripture, but the, the text that we read in terms of just what's happening in the world right now, um, the tragedy and the suffering of uh, people around us, it's all really beyond our, our reckoning. So we just ask that you would give us the grace to... Um, to read well and to think well and to live with 
empathy and compassion and empathy and compassion with ourselves, um, that you would give us the grace to, um, to be open uh, to your goodness and the goodness of uh, the other folks that we're in community with. Uh, we pray that you would give us the grace, especially to be able to let go of things that we need to be able to let go of. Um, ideas about you that do not serve us well. Give us the grace to be able to let go of those things. But also, as we find things that are nourishing us and ways that you are feeding us or voices that we're finding that are uh, speaking into our souls, uh, give us the grace, too, to be able to cling on to those things that are bearing fruit and that are bringing life and are bringing wholeness. Help us to be able to, to cling to those things as as well, and especially as we get ready just to come into this time where we receive the gift of this meal. Uh, we're so mindful that the gift of each other is a gift. This time is a gift. It's all a gift. And we we'll give you thanks for it.